mean, you just heard it read aloud, right? The word of the Lord, we all just heard it, how chapter 11 starts. Brother Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha, his dear sisters, send word to Jesus. We have a problem. Verse 5 tells us what? Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. What? Now, maybe we would expect that verse to read a little different, right? Something like, Lazarus is sick. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he got on the first plane he could, traveled to Bethany to be with them and heal Lazarus. Or so when he heard that Lazarus was sick. He went to the closest Starbucks to make sure he was caffeinated and then drove through the night to get to Bethany to be with these sisters and heal Lazarus. Verse 6, so when he heard Lazarus was sick, he canceled all his plans and immediately went to Bethany to be with his family and fix the problem. But that's not what the text says. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for the gift of this morning, rain and all. We are glad to be here. We are glad to worship you. Thank you for inviting us to do so. Thank you for your word. And we pray now that you would teach us, guide us, help us see who you are. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to welcome you once again to FBC and just say I'm so Glad that you are here. It's good to be together. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And let me just say I'm so grateful for our team at FBC because I was gone last week and Pastor Lee was preaching. And a few weeks before that, uh, Pastor Ian was preaching. And now uh, I'm back. But it's so good to see that we have, again, multiple voices bringing the Word of God, seeing their unique gifts, skills on display, their unique voice preaching the word, which reminds us that it's really about the message, not the messenger, right? We're here to hear the word of God, not a particular preacher, and so it's a gift to be reminded of that, and let me just say, I've been gone for, again, a couple different weeks for a couple different reasons, was in Phoenix on vacation, was helping out a, a sister church of ours preaching in Fremont, so I went to church in Phoenix, went to church in Fremont, we were at a conference as a staff team for a few days during the week, went to a church down in San Diego, and let me just say, I was so glad to come back to you all. I mean it, and to be here at FBC, there's truly nowhere else I'd rather be on a Sunday morning uh, I love you. Uh, we love this church. So good to see your faces masked and all, smiling back at me, all beautiful. And so I wanted you to know I love you, and I look forward to being back here this morning so, so much. You saw the problem in the text, right? Let's get to it. Verse 1, Lazarus is sick. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha Verse 2, we're going to hear it again. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus. We're going to hear it again. Lord, the one you love is sick. Thought about making a COVID reference, but it's too soon. We're not going to talk about that. 
But he's sick. We don't know what he's sick with. But he's not doing well. And we know from the text, we hear in a few different ways, that he's not just a random dude. Some fringe follower of Jesus, right? What does the text tell us? Verse 2, we learn a couple things about Lazarus. Verse 2, we learn that his family is devoted to Jesus. Okay, because we read about his sister Mary, it says, this was the same Mary who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, if you've... uh, you know, familiar with the Bible, you know the story, you know the events that he's referring to. If you haven't read the Bible, you're new to the Bible, you're like, what in the world is going on and why are women wiping men's feet with their hair? That's very strange. Back then, here's how the story goes. A woman approaches Jesus while he's reclining at a table for dinner. He's anointed with perfume. She dumps perfume on his head and even on his feet and begins wiping his feet with her hair, expensive perfume. Now, John tells us this story in chapter 12, but we're only in chapter 11 here. And so he's assuming that his audience knows the story, that from the other gospels where that account is told, people were aware of this Mary and what she did with the perfume. And it's not just a random strange detail that is thrown in there. This was an act of devotion, an act of honor for a guest, anointing with expensive perfume, a great sign and show of respect. And so we see that this family is devoted to Jesus. Mary is. We read about her sister Martha. We read about Lazarus and how in a number of places throughout the Gospels they have this unique relationship with Jesus, this deep friendship with him. And so these weren't fringe followers. These weren't random people that Jesus barely knew. These were sort of inner circle type people. So the first thing we learn, Lazarus and his family were devoted to Jesus. Second thing we learn, Lazarus is loved by Jesus. Now look at verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Clearly, they thought that would be enough information for Jesus to know who they were talking about. It's Lazarus, the one you love. Now, you might be wondering, well, did Jesus really love Lazarus, or were his sisters just saying that so that he would, you know, come and help out? Like, have you ever had someone you haven't talked to in a while, kind of buddy-buddy up to you, message you, hey, how you doing? I know it's been a while, but you're like, no, I don't want to buy your essential oils, Okay. Stay away. Um, I know you're just trying to get something out of me. Maybe, maybe they're, you know, trying to pretend that they're closer with Jesus than they actually are so that he'll come and help out and, and heal Lazarus or, or something like that. Is that what's going on here? No, I don't, I don't think so. Because verse 5 tells us what? Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So the text confirms that Jesus does, in fact, love Lazarus and this family. Jesus wasn't like the one you love, Lazarus. I don't love that guy. I barely know that guy. I went to high school with him. I haven't heard from him in a while. It wasn't that sort of thing. He loved Lazarus. So put that equation together. There's a problem. Lazarus is sick. And Lazarus is of a family that's devoted to Jesus. And Lazarus is loved by Jesus. If we put all that together, what do we expect to happen? Problem plus devotion to Jesus plus being loved by Jesus equals 
Jesus is going to come and fix your problem. That's how we, we think often it's supposed to go, right? Problem plus devotion to Jesus plus being loved by Jesus equals your problem will be solved. But that's not what happens, is it? Look at how, how does Jesus respond. We saw it already, verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. More on that in a little bit. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus hears about the sickness, the problem, the need of these sisters and Lazarus and his family and does what? Nothing. He stays where he is longer. He stays away. The math doesn't add up, right? We think Jesus is going to get word that Lazarus is sick and so boom, he's on the next flight to get there. I mean, the message from the sisters is clearly indicating, hey, there is a need here, a sense of urgency. Lazarus isn't doing well. Jesus, we need you here. But he waits. He doesn't show up. Now, there's an interesting small detail in the text. We see what in verse 5 it says, Jesus loves this family, right? And then verse 6 starts with a kind of funny word, uh, so, see that? Jesus loved this family, so here's how he responds. That word could be translated, therefore. It's the idea, it's a connecting word. How what came in verse 5 is connected to what we're about to hear in verse 6. Jesus loved this family, so, therefore, because he loved this family, he stayed away. Strange, right? Not what we would expect to read. He stayed where he was two more days. He didn't come to help. Was he, I don't know, busy making TikTok videos, scrolling through social media, preparing for his next big sermon in public? What was he doing? Now, there's debate with this passage amongst scholars as to where exactly was Jesus when he got this message. If, if you read commentaries, you'll see some people will say, well, was he about a day away from Bethany? Could have gotten there pretty quick. Was he four days away, something like that? It was going to take him a while. How, how soon could he have gotten there? Could he have arrived before Lazarus died? Some say yes, some say no. We'll read later that by the time Jesus does arrive, he'll get there. Lazarus will have been dead for four days. And so people kind of try and do the math. Lazarus has been dead for four days when he arrives. He stayed two days longer. What does that mean about when Lazarus dies? And there's a, kind of a question around that. But what I want you to see, no matter where you are on how that breaks down, no matter how you do the math exactly of how the days work, the family clearly was expecting an immediate response. Right? There's clearly a sense of urgency. Like, come now. Don't wait. Be here or at least we've seen Jesus heal from afar before, right? You know, Jesus doesn't have to be physically present in order to heal. So maybe they say, hey, you could do something even from where you are. But he doesn't. 
Or at least you could have shown up maybe one day after Lazarus died or, or two days. See, there was uh, this common belief likely amongst the Jews that within those first few days that someone died, their spirit was kind of hanging out in the same zip code still, you know, like hovering around the body. It was on call maybe to come back into the body if needed. So resuscitation was more likely possible maybe. But after the third day there, I mean, they're dead, dead, okay? So, like, if at first they're dead, now they're dead, dead after four days. And so maybe they're saying, hey, Jesus, you at least could have shown up, you know, in the, you know, kind of dead part, not the dead, dead part. You could have arrived here a little bit sooner. I mean, Martha says as much in verse 21, if you skip ahead a little bit, when Jesus does show up, Martha says what? If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's not just a throwaway verse, because then a little bit later, Mary, the other sister, says the exact same thing to Jesus. If you had been here, you wouldn't have died. And so clearly there, there's this sense of urgency from the sisters that wasn't met by Jesus. Look how the text continues. Here that Lazarus was sick. He stayed where he was two more days. Verse 7. Then, after this delay... He said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews were there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? So Jesus says, hey, okay, it's time to go to Lazarus and Mary and Martha and his disciples are like, what are you talking about? I mean, haven't you read chapter 10? Of, like, this is your book, right? Chapter 10, they were just trying to arrest you there in Judea. Uh, the Jews were trying to kill you, stone you, and you want to go back? And Jesus responds, verse 9, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Okay, that's Jesus speak for, yeah, guys, we're going back. Okay, <laughs> we're going to go back. Boom. Yeah, guys, we're going back. It's still daylight, essentially. He's saying there's work to be done. 12 hours of daylight. Not quite over yet. It's not quite night yet. Let's go do the job. Okay, continues. Verse 11. Say with me. After he had said this, he went on to tell him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, so good. Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Like, Lord, he's sick. Let him take a nap. Come on. Give him some vitamins and let him take a nap. Verse 13. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Okay, so they're confused. Verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is a little zealous there, but we're not entirely sure what in verse 16. But, but trace the text with me so far, okay? Think about it. Verse 1, there's a problem. Lazarus is sick. Verse 5, Jesus loves Lazarus and this family. Verse 6, so he stays where he is longer. He delays. He doesn't go to help. And now verse 11 and 14, Lazarus is dead. He dies. Next week, we're going to press on past verse 16 and see Jesus work a miracle. We're going to see Jesus' power on display. We're going to see resurrection we're going to see Jesus doing amazing things to display his power over the grave, but that's next week. 
I think we need to stay here a little bit longer. Because there's something for us here in this uh, first chunk of chapter 11. This really important truth I don't want us to miss. And it's this. As Jesus waits, he delays. He doesn't go to help right away. We see that Jesus is not worried. That's a tagline. That's a big idea of this morning. Jesus is not worried. He's not anxious about the situation. Even this challenging, painful, difficult circumstance. He's not worried. He's not anxious. He's not threatened, wringing his hands, wondering, is the plan of God going to unfold in this situation, or is it somehow threatened? He's not worried. You see that? He gets the word. Lazarus is sick, and he doesn't panic or freak out or get angry with his disciples. Get your shoes on. We got to go. We got somewhere to be. Come on, guys. Sweaty palms. Call the Uber. We got to go. He doesn't, str- he doesn't do that. He doesn't panic. So he's not worried. And his purposeful delay in verse 6 shows this. So let's think about this for a minute. Why isn't he worried? Is it because he has faith in Lazarus? Lazarus is strong, young, healthy. I think he's a vegan even. He ate nothing but organic food. He didn't crossfit, okay? He's good. He's going to be able to fight this thing off. We're not worried about Lazarus. He'll be fine. He's a fighter. No, that's not why Jesus isn't worried. Is it because he has faith in the healthcare system there in Bethany? Kaiser Bethany, they are dialed in. Okay, they got their stuff figured out. Doctors will be great. Don't worry about Lazarus. No, that's not why Jesus isn't worried. Why isn't he worried? It's because he knows the plan. He knows the plan. He knows his power. He knows what he's going to show up and do. Right, Verse 4, he's able to say what? This is not going to result in death. This is for the glory of God. I know what's about to happen, and so I'm not worried. So I want you to see from the text, the plans, the, the purposes of God are not threatened. Jesus has no rivals. He's not stressed out wondering if his plans are going to come to pass. He's not worried because he knows the plan. Now, important qualifier here with this, just because he's not worried does not mean that he does not care or that he is cold and indifferent to this hurting family. In fact, later we're going to read in the text in chapter 11, he comes there, he sees the tomb, and he weeps. Verse 35, you can speed ahead if you want. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. If you want to impress somebody, tell them, I memorized the Bible verse today. Jesus wept. Two words. Congratulations. Boom. Jesus wept. So we see that Jesus is not cold and indifferent and unmoved. He's troubled. He's, his heart is stirred at this loss, at the grief of this family. So I'm not saying he's indifferent and in that he does not care. And that's an important distinction. It's one that I try to make in, in every you know, memorial or funeral 
I do. Every time sitting down with a family who's just lost someone and, and they're believers, yes, there's great hope in the resurrection. As Christians, we have great hope. And the reason to have confidence in eternal life to come because of Jesus. We can take comfort in that, but that does not mean that we do not grieve. That does not mean that the loss does not still sting and weigh heavy on us. That does not mean that we don't have to process the emotions that come with loss. The loss is still real. And so the emotionally mature response for a Christian is not, yeah, indifference, hey, we have hope in the resurrection, no big deal. No, loss is still real. Grief is still real. We have to process that in a healthy way. And so I want you to see, Jesus will weep at the loss of his friends. So he's not worried. But that doesn't mean he's indifferent or that he doesn't care. And so here's why I think this is so important for us today, because we are a crazy, anxious people, aren't we? We are so stressed out about everything all the time. We're so worried. And so we see here, Jesus isn't worried. And if we remember that, it reminds us that we don't have to be worried. Even as he faces death, loss, sickness, he's not stressed or panicked or anxious or wondering if things are going to work out. He knows the plan. And so if we can take our eyes off of ourselves and our situation and look to him, it can give us great confidence, comfort, encouragement. You know, I might not know the plans, but he does. This past week, uh, Monday through Wednesday, our leadership team, most of our board and staff were able to go down to San Diego to a ministry leadership conference, and we had a great time. Uh, We ate good food. We stayed in a cute little Airbnb. Steve and I rode bikes down to the beach. It was great. We went to this conference, heard these great speakers uh, speak about the goodness of God, and it was just so fun and so encouraging. Came back refreshed. And one thing, really, a number of things stood out, but one thing particular to this text that really stood out, one of the speakers there, her name was Megan Fate Marshman, um, did a fantastic job teaching, and she pointed out, she went to this key verse that many of us know, Jeremiah 29, 11. Maybe some of us got that, I don't know, tattooed somewhere, or we know that verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and God is speaking to his people in exile there, comforting them, hey, I'm going to give you a hope, I'm going to give you a future, you don't have to worry, and many of us, even though we're not um, living in a literal Babylonian exile, uh, we can still take comfort in those verses and be like, God knows what he's doing, he knows the plan, right, he can give us hope and and a future. She points out from that text, you know what, God says that he knows the plans, but he doesn't say that he's going to tell us the plans. God knows the plans. He doesn't say he's going to tell us the plans. Right? And so our invitation is to trust God, even when we don't know the plan, and walk by faith one step at a time. He knows where he's taken us, He's not always going to lay that out step by step for us. You're just going to have to trust him. Let's be honest, the last year and a half has been hard for 
us all in different ways. We've grieved different losses, our families. Uh, individually, we've been hit by things. As a church family, I to be honest, as, as your pastor, this has been a hard year and a half. There's been times of discouragement, times of confusion, times of frustration, grief. And we're still figuring out how, how to navigate this as a church family. There are still times of uncertainty, right? Uh, people have died. We've had to say goodbye to people we love. People have moved away. People have left the church for different reasons. People have stayed away from church. Even though they're still kind of connected, we don't, we don't see them anymore. Some for good reasons, some for bad reasons. <laughs> Many of us feel disconnected right now, don't we? It feels like momentum is low. It's a hard season. I feel that as a church family. I feel that as your pastor. I know you, in, in a number of different ways, feel that in your life, your work, your family. We're navigating hard things together. But I want you to know, I came back from the trip refreshed and encouraged. Not because I came back with some silver bullet strategy to make everything perfect here. I came back. The Lord from on high gave me the tablets, the detailed plan. I'm going to come and implement it at the church, and everything's going to be up and to the right, and we're going to be great. That didn't happen. I am excited about some of the things ahead, though. Let me tell you. You'll hear more about it coming up. Good things are ahead. But I didn't come back with, with the fix to all the problems. You know, all the perfect little tweaks, silver bullet plan to make everything great. But what I did come back with was a renewed confidence in the Lord. Renewed trust in the Lord. You know what? I might not know the plan and exactly what he's up to right now, but he does. He's here. He's at work. We can trust him one step at a time. It was so refreshing just to have that, that renewed vision of God's glory, his goodness, how big and present and true he is. He's what we need. And he's going to guide us, even if it's kind of clunky along the way. Here we go. He's not worried. And so we don't have to be either. And I sense that that, that word, which is encouraging to me, might be just what you need to hear as well with whatever you're facing. Jesus isn't worried. He knows right where he has you. He hasn't forgotten about you. If it feels like he's delayed, there's a purpose behind it. He's not wringing his hands about your situation. Uh, it's going to work out. I don't know. He knows what he's doing. One of the things I've learned as an adult is that Vacation takes a lot of work. Travel, it turns out, takes a lot of work. Whether you're going across the country or just down the street for a night or whatever, uh, picking up and going somewhere takes work. But when you're a kid, you don't really get that, do you? Right? When you're an adult, you're like, well, i got to be the one to figure out how we get where we're going and where we're sleeping and what we're eating. i got to keep these little, you know, uh, humans alive, and there's a lot of pressure, right? i got to be the one to figure it out and to know where we're going. But when you're a kid, you just show up, right? And your mom and dad just shuttle you around. You're like, where are you going to eat uh, later? I don't know. Where are you sleeping? I, I'm not really sure. How are we going to get there? I, I don't know. My mom and dad know. They'll figure it out, right? 
There's just this, this freedom, this, this simplicity, this trust that we've had as a child to say, you know what, I don't know, but my dad does, and so we'll be okay. And I think we need to regain a bit of that simplicity of faith, childlike faith, right? We can just trust the Lord. I don't know the plans. He does. He's going to make sure I get where I'm going, where I need to be. You might not know the plans for you, but the Lord does. And there are a few things we can be sure of from this text, a few encouragements, okay? The first thing, God will use your life for his glory. We saw that back in verse 4. Look at it again. It said, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's Glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So Jesus says this sickness, this situation, this challenge will be used for the glory of God. The Son of God will be glorified through this. In other words, this somehow is going to be used to point to the goodness of God. How God sustains us. How faithful God is. He's going to be glorified, made much of through this. And the New Testament speaks of that end in a number of ways, constantly pointing us to our lives being used for the glory of God, that we might live, Ephesians 1, to the praise of His glory, that we exist to make much of Him, to show how beautiful and worthy and good God is. It was John Piper who famously said, God is most glorified in you, when you are most satisfied in Him. Say it again. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. And guess when that's most on display? In the midst of loss. In the midst of waiting. In the midst of trial. Because... It's easy to be satisfied in God when things are good, right? Bank accounts full. Kitchen uh, cupboards are full. Relationships are good, right? Sipping cocktails on a beach in Mexico. Things are good. God is good. Amen. And it's true. God is good, and he gives us good gifts, and we can praise him in those moments. Absolutely. But when it really is shown is in loss. When we can say through pain through trial, through difficulty, God is good still. He will sustain me through this. He's my daily bread. He's my comfort. He's my portion. I don't know how this is all going to work out, but he's sustaining our family. He's here with us, and that's enough. Jesus is enough. That glory is shown in the midst of suffering and loss. So Jesus says in verse 4, hey, that's what God's doing here. God's going to use this situation to show his power, to show his glory, to show his goodness. But it's not only that. Not only will God use this for his glory, he's also going to use it for our good. Right? Do you see also in verse 5, again, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And it's because he loves them that he allows this to happen, that he works in this way. Later, he's going to tell his disciples, I'm glad, right? I'm glad we weren't there so that your strength, or excuse me, your faith can be strengthened. 
So this is an opportunity for faith to increase, for them to draw near to the Lord, trust him even more. Often we think if Jesus loves me, he'll fix my circumstances, but that's not always true. And sometimes what we do is what we try to define our circumstances, excuse me, we define God's love by our circumstances. When instead, we're supposed to define our circumstances by God's love. Saying, God is for me, I know that. And so how is this going to be used for my good? And our family's good. And let me tell you, the answer to that isn't always clear. I'm not saying we can always draw a straight line from point A to point B. We might never know. But we can trust that God is at work. He's for us. He loves us. He loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loves his disciples. He wants their strength, or excuse me, their faith to be strengthened. This is an opportunity for them to see his power and see his goodness and trust him even more. And so God is always going to work for his glory and our good. Now, we know that Jesus is going to go on in the rest of chapter 11 to raise Lazarus from the grave. And he might work a miracle in your situation too. But he might not. This text is not a promise that all our circumstances will work out in resurrection like this. But this text is an invitation to trust Jesus. To believe that he is good, that he loves you, that he is for you, and that he is not worried. And so you can rest easy. You can put your head on your pillow tonight and sleep well because God is sovereign and in control and for you. He will use all these things in your life for his glory and your good. Whether or not your circumstances change, we do have this promise from John 11. A few verses later in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. So really the, the big idea, the point of chapter 11 as a whole is that Jesus will raise his friend Lazarus back to life, showing his power over the grave saying he is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him will live even though they die. So there's this promise of eternal life, of resurrection life in Jesus for all who trust in him. So temporary circumstances may not change. Lazarus comes back to life, but guess what? He dies later, again. <laughs> and so our hope is not in temporary changes. Our hope is in eternal life in the name of Jesus, for whoever would trust in him. And so friends, it's simply an invitation once again to trust in Jesus, as we've seen so often in John. We deserved death because of our sin, separation from God, judgment, hell forever. But God in his grace and mercy made a way for us to be forgiven and reconciled back to relationship with him and brought home into his family and seated at his table and it's all through the work of Jesus if we would trust in him. Would you pray with me, friends? 
Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the resurrection and the life. You are the one who has victory over the grave. And it's through you and you alone that we can be given new life, both now and forever. And so, Jesus, we look to you as our Savior, as our hope, the one in whom we trust. It's in your name alone. And yet, Jesus, we admit that right now, many of us probably find ourselves in a place like Mary and Martha, where we say there's a need. Lord, we've sent out our SOS to you. We need help, and yet it feels like there's this delay, and we don't know why. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help each of us trust you in whatever we are navigating. Help us be people of great faith. Help us remember that you're not worried. You're present. You're at work, and we can trust you. Help us, Lord. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.